0: Hi friends, welcome to episode number 105 of Escaping the Cave, Toddzilla X-Pod. Escapingthecave.com, Toddzilla X, over at Substack, as well as Twitter and Facebook, all that stuff. Hi, how are you? Oh, apparently I need tea right off the bat. Ah. Interesting week, <laughs> since last we spoke. List of things to talk about today. Rush Limbaugh passed away at the age of 70. 70 years old, Rush Limbaugh. Seems like he's been around for 50 years, doesn't it? That man did more in, what, 33 years? Than most people. Pretty incredible. Perseverance Rover. About to endure its seven minutes of hell, seven minutes of terror, I think is what NASA and JPL are calling it, but it takes place here at about 12 hours or so, right now, from when I, uh, I'm sitting here recording this, the very early morning hours of uh, Thursday, February the 18th of 2021. It's a Thursday, right? One of the things I didn't talk about in the last episode that I meant to... My buddy Chris and I, Friar Chris out there in Massachusetts, had a nice drunken conversation. I think I realized during the course of that little chat that we had, we've been locked down, we've been isolated, we've been, you know, sort of enduring this uh, social distancing shit for 11 months now. We've been living with COVID in our everyday lives for a year now. And I think it's finally starting to take a little bit of a toll on me. I'm just completely isolated here. I work from home, if you call it work. I don't know if you do, but I do. I work from here. I don't see anybody but the girlfriend and her family. And having that chat with Chris last week, I think I, I, I think I, I started to realize how much it has affected me, how much it's starting to affect me now. I had this really funny thought. I, I got off of Facebook. After being on it, being really into it as my primary means of uh, socialization, not the only means of socialization I had, but for, yeah, a good uh, 12 years, that was my primary source. How I kept in touch with people, how I kept conversations going after moving all over the country. Well, last June 1st, I decided to just blow everybody out. I finally did it. I've been working toward it for a number of years. Kind of three steps forward, two steps back. Sometimes three steps forward, ten steps back. But it was a process. It was something I was trying to get through. The last thing on my uh, Facebook profile was posted June 1st. Nobody in there except these travel contacts I've talked about. I've talked about digital detox over and over and over again. That was the process for me. It took me a long time to get there. It happened last June 1st in the middle of a freaking pandemic right? It's occurred to me perhaps that wasn't the best time to do this. I mean, we're me going to be socially distanced and socially isolated because of the pandemic, maybe I should have considered factoring that in before I decided to blow everybody out. Maybe I would be better off now, you know, maybe maintaining those relationships that I'd had, the good ones at least, for the last 12 years. Maybe I should have held on to those and kept it, you know, as as a means of having some sort of interaction with other people. More of it, more interaction with other people. This is where not getting out of the house and going to work and doing things professionally outside of the house comes back to get me. (laughs) I decided to kill Facebook, too. Uh, I don't know if that was smart. You know, the logic was there, and it, it felt like the right time to do it, the right thing to do at the right time at the time. But how would things be different? Would I be dealing with things a little bit better had I not done that? I don't know. I mean, it's not like I'm, you know, in a ball of anxiety, curled up in the corner. But like a lot of people who have it a lot worse than I do, I'm pretty isolated here. I'm, I'm pretty cut off. You know, the window on the world from some pretty dubious sources, you know, the Internet and cable news. I don't know. We had a nice chat. Chris and I did. Nice conversation about that. It's affecting him out there in Massachusetts as well. But how can it not? Everything's been thrown up into the air over the course of the last year. I haven't talked about the pandemic on the podcast in a really long time. Through the last surge that we went through over the holiday season, and now things are 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 sort of you know ramping back down to I guess pre surge levels or eh, whatever it is. Uh, vaccine being produced right here in Kalamazoo, Pfizer. Proud of those folks. That's made me rethink some things. I've been thinking, rethinking a lot. You probably could tell in the last few episodes. And yeah, that was one of the things that I got to I got to thinking about was my, my old rants about uh, pharmaceutical companies and the big drug companies, big pharma. Well, with big pharma, this evil corporation, would they have been able to get this vaccine out as quickly as they did if they weren't a for-profit corporation? If they weren't charging... As much as they were for their products and their drugs before this, would they have had the money on hand to be able to do the research and development to get the COVID vaccine produced as quickly as they did with that kind of efficacy? It's a rhetorical question. I'm not, I'm not going to go off on a diatribe talking about the the merits of corporatism now. But I have rethought it. And it kind of ties into this Mars thing as well. <laughs> Sounds like a complete non-sequitur. I know it does. It really isn't, though. Because I, I used to read a lot of exploration books, and I'm going to get into more of this, I think, maybe later on today or maybe in another episode. But I have an entire shelf on my bookcase dedicated to explorers like Magellan and Captain Cook and Stanley and Livingston, just the adventurism that was going on in, in the African continent back in the 1800s with those two. I like explorers. I like those, those folks who went and, you know, attacked the Arctic or Antarctica to be the first people to get to the South Pole or get to the North Pole or, or take their boats down there and get it stuck in the... How, whatever, man. The, these people, these people had guts. They had balls the size of which I can't even fathom. I have this really interesting book, a biography of... Uh, John Paul Jones. And I think it's him. And the author, I think it was in that book. It was either that or another one of his. I wish I had his name. His last name's Morrison, I think. But one of his two books, he's talking about how those explorers, those old school ship sailors, those captains on these boats, these crewmen on these wooden boats two, three, four hundred, five hundred years ago, when they would set sail into the Atlantic Ocean trying to find a way to circumnavigate the globe or try to find a new way, a shorter way, a quicker way to the Spice Islands, for example. He made the case that they had more courage, were more courageous than the Apollo astronauts. I sort of did a double take about when he when he talked about that, when he mentioned that, he said, wait a minute, these, these people getting in boats were more courageous than these astronauts riding a controlled Hydrogen explosion into orbit, into the moon? Anyway, he kept going. He talked about the technology. He talked about the isolation. He talked about uh, several of the elements. that got me to think, like, yeah, maybe you're right, because they didn't know anything that was out there. They had no idea. They had no, if something went wrong, you never heard from again. Even if you're just marooned on an island, maybe you hit some coral, you row ashore, nobody's coming for you. You can't contact anybody. You know, the idea of, I don't know, one of those things, the Kraken. Is that what it was? The Kraken? Now that was that was a Greek thing, wasn't it? That was something mythological. Like the giant squid. The the myths and the stories that people heard. I, it took a lot of courage, it took a lot of guts to get on those boats. Yeah, I, I really appreciate these old school explorers. But they didn't go just for the adventure of it. This ties in, I promise. I think it was Magellan. I was looking for a route to those the aforementioned Spice Islands. A way to make money. You know, repay the investors that financed the voyage. There was always some sort of a financial aspect to this. They didn't go just for the altruistic... A you know, goal of contributing to the human base of knowledge. Although that was part of it. There's an adventure aspect in there, too. But it was a combination of things. And it ties into what I was talking about. It ties into Mars because now we've got, we have this conversation that's been going on since the 1960s about whether or not the government should be paying for these missions with tax dollars. I think they should be, but it's a legitimate conversation. You're welcome to have it. I'm of the opinion they should. But now you've got private corporations getting involved. Elon Musk, SpaceX, I think Virgin's getting involved in this too. They're not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. There are resources to be exploited both on the moon, on Mars, asteroids, comets, God knows what else is out there. They're chasing dollar signs. U.S. government probably doing the same thing, but it also has, I guess, national security implications. They don't want China. They don't want Russia, I guess, and a foothold on Mars. Yeah, what if there's some new mineral there? <laughs> I don't know. But it takes me back to Pfizer. That's one of the things that I had to rethink on this, kind of tied into the, the old Voyagers and the old Explorers, the old seafaring Explorers that went off, you know, searching, searching for riches on the Spice Islands. Well, Pfizer, they chased money as well. Now, They have money on hand. They have the resources to be able to do the research and development in a crisis, in a national emergency, in a global emergency, actually, where they can finance research and development, get a vaccine, you know, a matter of months. It's not cut and dried. It's not black and white. Had to rethink that. There's this thing in radio. When you get in, you suck. Uh, You have an idea how to go about your, your craft, but... There's only one way to really improve and get good. There's only one way to do it, and that's by doing it. When you start out, you suck. And as you learn and as you get better, as you, you know, uh, sort of improve and pull things off, if you're a smart radio talent, you'll take your tape and you'll listen to it every single day. Okay, I I screwed up there. I thought that sounded good. That sucked. I shouldn't do that again. And actually, I thought that sucked, but it sounds pretty good. I think I'll kind of, okay, I'll incorporate that into my toolbox, blah, 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 blah. And when you're young and you're early on in your career, you think you're doing really well, right? It's all relative. You're improving. That sounded really good compared to that back there. But there's this thing with uh, radio people. I don't know if it's a thing anymore. Probably not. But when I was in it, I started, uh, I guess, about 23, 23, 24 years ago. We'd keep our uh, old air check tapes. These are, you know, cassette tapes. When you're in a radio studio, anytime you turn your microphone on, the tape recorder will start recording. And it gets everything. It comes to the music, the commercials, your voice. Everything goes onto that tape. And then you turn your microphone off, and it stops recording. Right? You just get these little chunks of, of you. That's the idea. So you can take the tape, you can put it in your car, your tape deck in your car way back when, or you can take it home, stick it in your uh, home stereo. You can listen to yourself and you can improve. You can listen to yourself out of the moment, detached. Or you can take those tapes in and you can uh, have somebody else listen to them, and they'll critique you and give you some honest feedback if they're decent human beings. <laughs> right. But there's this thing, we used to keep them. I've still got all of mine. Boxes of them. They're fun to listen to. They get more fun as time goes on. But there's this thing that every radio DJ has experienced if they've been in the business long enough, and that is where they take their old tape, one of the tapes that they used to think was really good, they'll stick it in the tape deck, they'll listen to it, and they'll cringe, oh my God, ah, I can't believe Ugh that's a sign that you have improved. It's cringeworthy. There's probably, I guess, applications of this, different areas of life. But it's a signal and a sign, an indication that you have gotten better. You have learned your craft, and you can now identify what you were doing wrong because before earlier on in your career, You were ignorant. You didn't understand it. You hadn't figured it out yet, but now you do. And now when you hear yourself oblivious to those things, you cringe. You react. It's a good thing. doesn't feel that way, but it is a good thing. I found myself doing this repeatedly with a lot of my material lately. Not so much the recent stuff, not so much the podcast material here, recently, but some of it from a couple of years ago. Definitely when I go back and listen to the stuff from 2014, most definitely. And and some of the old uh, video podcast stuff that I was doing when I was traveling. But I've really noticed it in a lot of the, the old Facebook stuff. Stuff where I thought I was being witty. Just being outspoken and opinionated, just speaking my mind, telling the truth, keeping it real, keeping it one hundred. Now, I'm separated now, and this this could be this could be the, the an indication that maybe maybe a symptom of being off the platform for eight months, at least on a regular basis. I still post for the page. I still you know post stuff to that kind of ties into the theme or the the topicality of the podcast, but not nearly as. Uh, Oh, passionately. not that the right word? Probably not. As I used to. I read a lot of that stuff that I, I just... Oh, cringe. It's like watching a tape of yourself drunk. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gotten really drunk when somebody has a video camera around you? I, I guess this has probably happened a lot more in recent years with, with iPhones and things, but you get all shit-faced. Somebody shows you a tape of it. It's like, that's what it feels like. The certainty, the certainty that I had 10 years ago, the certainty, I think, born of ignorance to a large part, to a large degree, not completely, I wasn't wrong about everything, but there were some things, particularly religion. God, I wish I could take that stuff back. I wish I could take it down. I wish I could remove it from people's minds. I wish I could make it so people had not had to endure that. Certain people. I've evolved. It's like the radio thing. I think that over the last couple of years, as I've learned more, I think, about the inner workings of the mind and how human beings just are, rather than seeing these things as character defects. And coming from a, a position of my own self righteousness, I'm starting to see it's like, oh, Todd, no, uh, oh, uh. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's not happening all the time. It's not with everything I've written. In fact, it's some of the stuff that I, some of the best stuff that I have ever written, and some of the best stuff that holds up the best, was written during that same time period this period of time, the stretch of about a month, I think it was in 2011 or 2012. It was in January, one of those two years. I've still got this stuff up at ToddZillaX.com. But there's a stretch of like three or four posts, blog posts, that I wrote just before I went to Mexico that year. They still hold up. Some of the travel writing, some of the travel blogging that I did, a lot of it really judgmental, a lot of it coming from a position of just the certainty of ignorance. Right? The more ignorant you are, the more certain you are, you're right. This is clinically proven. (laughs) I don't know if that's the Dunning-Kruger thing. I, I don't know what that is, but they've studied that. Stupid people are more certain of their brilliance than brilliant people. You see that all over social media all the time, don't we? The certainty of stupid. I'm starting to see mine. But... This is good. It's very uncomfortable. It's very, kind of makes you unsure of yourself. You know, you get a little tentative. Okay, I need to make sure that I'm not, you know, repeating history, repeating the same mistake or, you know, repeating the crime about which I complain right now. And I'm not 100% certain that when I lose control of my temper, I'm not 100% certain that I'm still not engaging in that. In fact, I, I know that I am. But there's also this subconscious thing going on here. Subconsciously, I know it. Like I'll get into the flow of something and I'll write it or I'll do it on the podcast and I'll I'll, I'll steadily, the, the heat continues to rise and boil and boil and I get myself riled up and pretty soon I'm in almost into a full-fledged rant, usually saying you a lot, <laughs> right? When I'm not even talking to you. I'm talking about somebody else. I'm I'm actually doing the show at that point for somebody who doesn't even listen to the damn show. Which is silly. It's another thing I've had to rethink. That tribalism thing. That we, you, they thing. But typically when I get going, that's when, you know, when the, like I said, the heat rises and I get into rant mood. Get a little drunk on the anger. Right? I'll do it. I'll edit it. It'll sound good. Sound fine. Whatever. Upload it, go to bed. Very first thing, I wake up the next morning and I've got this huge amount of anxiety because of something I either said or wrote, either published or uploaded to the podcast. It's really bizarre. And a lot of times I'll come in here and there have been days that I have to really kill the urge to just delete whatever it was I did that night, the night before. I mean, it's hard to leave it there. It's hard to leave it posted. I just want to take it down because, oh, my God, it's uh, the the cringe, you know? And then usually I'll sit down and I'll listen to it. I'll be like, oh, okay, this isn't as bad as I'm glad I listened to it. I'm glad I didn't just delete it. There have been a couple of times that I've had to go back in and uh, I would edit something out before too many people downloaded the thing. But a couple of times in 2019, I think there were two episodes in 2019, I was just like, you know what, fuck this, I'm taking the entire segment. You remember those, I think. A couple of you got those. I think Matt, probably. (laughs) Anyway, it's a really odd psychological phenomenon that's happening. After I upload this stuff, after I go to bed, after I have a night's sleep and I wake up and I'm immediately... I mean, it's almost like that is what wakes me up, is the anxiety about, what did I do? Again, I think this is good. Something through the research, maybe my, my uh, research on, on social media, agitation propaganda, the emotive response, all of this stuff. I, I think that the, what I've learned... Is creating this reaction inside of my head, this anxiety, like, okay, you can't do the same thing you used to do. You were part of the problem. Stop being part of the problem, Todd. <laughs> I think that's what I, but I'm going too far. Because I don't I, I I'm not hundred percent sure where the guardrails are at this point. Right? It's making me a little tentative here and there, as I I, I try to reestablish, I don't know, the the boundaries, my own boundaries. I mean, it's easy to come in here and sit down. If I've got a roadmap, if I've got some kind of a, you know, pseudo-script, at least bullet points to know where I'm going and cut loose. But I don't know. There's a line between information and agitation. There's a line between honesty and aggression, and I haven't quite figured out—not 100% exactly where I want to land on the spectrum. It is a fork in the road for your friendly virtual Toddzilla. Then again, it comes back to the the isolation, the pandemic. That's not helping nobody to really bounce anything off of anymore. Nobody that'll tell me the truth anyway. Just sad, really. Human deception. Inherent human deception. Let me tell you about that sometime. Yeah. To be a wall, a concert hall it echoes with the sound of salesmen, of salesmen, of salesmen. Yeah, rethinking goes both ways too I mean Rush Limbaugh died uh, yesterday and if you had uh, told me 10 or 15 years ago that I'd be mourning Rush Limbaugh even slightly I'd have laughed at you but again this is, this is really weird because I am mourning this guy unexpectedly I'm an old radio rat this is like Gretzky or Jordan dying for radio people you didn't have to like his team. You didn't have to like the way he played. But as a radio professional, you had to respect the skill, the talent, the foresight. He wasn't both loved and despised by millions and millions of people for following a safe formula. For being like everyone else. For being cliche, therefore forgettable. As a radio person, you have got to respect it. just about everybody I know. They'll say they didn't like him. They all say they hated his content. They wanted his paychecks, I can tell you that. $60 million a year, something like that? He and Howard Stern are unquestionably the kings of radio. Unquestionably. He is one of the two pillars of radio. You may not like what he had to say. You may not like his tactics, his rhetorical technique, But you had to respect the skill, his ability to communicate with his audience, his ability to connect with his audience, even his ability to propagate his audience, propagandize his audience. He didn't have to like how he was doing it, but he was guiding conservative thought for decades. He sketched the blueprint for talk radio. There was talk radio before. He changed it. He invented it. In some ways, he is responsible for Fox News. He even influenced podcasting. What I'm doing was influenced by Rush Limbaugh. I mean, even the uh, even that abomination, Joy Reid. She had to admit his influence. I mean, she did it by black how you know Limbaugh weaponized white male grievance. Hey, thanks for explaining that to me, Joy. But she begrudgingly, she gets it. She understands the influence that that man had. A lot of people, millions and millions of people, think he's an asshole. Well, millions and millions of people saw him as something very different than that. It's kind of like how Bill Maher is perceived differently based on the political faith. Lots of others before Limbaugh, but he patented, I think, tribal radio. Can't prove it. Cannot prove it at all. But I also think he engaged in that for-profit informational performance art. Talked about that with Glenn Beck in the past. I'm coming to believe that that for-profit informational performance art has become par for the uh, opinion course, as far as electronic media goes. Limbaugh benefited greatly, immeasurably, from the death of the Fairness Doctrine. As well, that's the rule where political commentary had to be balanced by offering both opposing points of view. That was that was one of the very first things that the Federal Communications Commission or whatever it was called before that they they put that in there so you couldn't just have ideological radio. You had to have it was a public service. If you're going to offer this viewpoint, you have to offer this viewpoint as well. Reagan's uh, FCC got rid of that in the 1980s. It's called the fairness doctrine, offering both opposing points of view. A quaint little notion in twenty twenty one, isn't it? Can you imagine how that would change everything? If we're suddenly reimposed, how do you think the the national media landscape and discourse? How do you think that would look? Would I have to offer equal woke flake time? And I mentioned Glenn Beck a minute ago. He, you know, he probably, almost certainly, learned the. Informational performance art technique from Rush Limbaugh. See, and that's the thing. I no longer view him, Limbaugh, as a righteous crusader fighting for his vision of America. I don't see him that way at all. I see him the same way I see Glenn Beck. And maybe this is why I have a little bit of respect and why I'm feeling a loss today. Because I think he was an entertainer who learned to cynically accept Who and what we are. Storytellers. Not truth seekers, storytellers. And he told a story. That's what propaganda is, right? A political, an ideological story, political scripture. And Rush Limbaugh was America's evangelical on that front for a number of years. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. But you have got to respect the skill, the craftsmanship. You really do. I have a unique perspective, I suppose, Uh, compared to most people. Compared to most of you. Being that I worked inside of the industry. Inside of Limbaugh's industry, I worked I worked inside of it for, you know, eleven, twelve years. I loved it. I was having a conversation with Brian. This is before Limbaugh died. We were talking about radio a couple days ago, and it was like, you know what, Brian? I feel like we were talking about a coworker that we chat who'd retired. Yeah, it was really weird how he was gone it looked like a salary dump kind of thing, where they're gonna you know, get rid of this guy who's been at a radio station for, like, Limbaugh 30 years, but not going to replace him, not going not gonna to replace that salary. It sounded like he was forced to retire. To me, just to me, I could be completely wrong about this, but that's how radio's been going. 20 years, man. Automation's killing it, killing the art, killing the art form that radio was. See, that's the thing about Limbaugh. Limbaugh, to me, represents a radio artiste, a craftsman in a business, in an art form that I loved. I really did. And so did Brian. We we're having a conversation about this, and uh, you know, as it, as it usually does when he and I start talking about radio. <laughs> we start talking about the good old days. Like, I miss it. I do, too. And I told him it was like watching a good friend get raped, radio being the good friend. And how the rest of the industry, how the people who are still in it, still happen to be somehow involved in that industry. And it's a fraction of the people that I knew when I worked in it, a fraction of those people are still left because they've been phased out, they've been downsized, cut, or they've consolidated seven different positions into one. It's like watching a good friend get gang raped. That's what it feels like. That's why I'm bitter. When it comes to radio, I'm not the only one. Again, I know I'm speaking from a very specific, a very unique point of view and perspective here. I don't know that a lot of you can understand that. Maybe you can. I don't know. That's why I respect what Libba, he, he, is a, he. He He's a throwback. Talk radio itself is sort of a throwback. This, what I'm doing right now, is closer to the art form than anything I did in the last five years of my career. A little weird, sitting in my home studio doing this. It's not live, I wish it were, but it is. It's there. You can do it. Got a little off track there, but I guess what I'm talking about, when it comes to Limbaugh, when it comes to tribal radio, and when it comes to this for-profit performance art, all right. You can respect the artist, you can respect the performance artist, while also becoming a more sophisticated media consumer. And I think that's what we need here. I think that may be where I can help you out <laughs> a little bit, just simply by building on my own perspective, building on what I know, being on the inside of the media for a period of time. I've said a number of times on the show that we need to be better informational consumers. Much better. Much better. There's too much of it out there. If you are not a sophisticated connoisseur of the data and the information that you are consuming, you will be consumed by it. He who cannot tell truth from falsehood does not remain free. It doesn't matter why you can't tell. If it's because you're overwhelmed or because you're lazy, because you're stupid, it doesn't matter. All three of those lanes lead to the same exit. They go to the same place. It doesn't matter why you can't tell. Now, the One thing that I can address here, I guess the one thing that kind of fits in with Limbaugh and all this, is being a sophisticated media consumer. Understanding how to curate your data. Got a couple of examples here for you. One from this week CNN and Fox. I've noticed that they have simply switched roles <laughs> since January 20th, since the inauguration. Biden had a town hall this week. I think it was in Milwaukee. Again, it was improvisational performance art. Pre written, pre approved questions read by the quote-unquote audience, this gathered audience, as the means to lob easy questions at Joe Biden so he could propagate to a national audience, so he could deliver his spit of choice to a, nationwide, a captive nationwide audience. And Anderson Cooper, he was sort of the quote-unquote the moderator. His role appeared to be less that of the moderator or skeptical journalist than that of the sidekick. Like he was on stage to keep Joe on track. To ask the right questions if he didn't get the right talking point out there. That's what that felt like to me. He wasn't an adversarial journalist. He's a sidekick. I guarantee you Biden knew the questions, including Anderson Cooper's. He had rehearsed his answers just like he would prior to a debate. You think those people, they go to debates, they know the questions. You know this. Why would you think that it's any different as one of these town hall meetings? It has to be that way. It must be this way. There's no way his political handlers would put him on live television in front of a wild card audience with real questions. Too much could go wrong. Now, I don't know what your political leanings are, but if you're a Democrat and this were a Trump event, you'd be able to see it. You'd be able to see the softball questions. You, the, 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 the audience members, whoever's asking these questions, looking down at the piece of paper, making sure they didn't write it. They'd know their own questions. Had they written them, they wouldn't have to read them off a piece of paper. Right? If this were a Trump event... Democrats, you'd be able to see it. How many Democrats this week? That town hall, just chicken-headed themselves non-along. Yep, 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 yep. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And how many screeching Trump towners ate up the Trumpian version of this when Trump was in office? Oh yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. While Democrats are over there, oh you, you, you suck. This is BS. It's one of the things, you, you got to take this, uh, I'll go back to the Allul book. It's obvious, it's self-evident, but you can never see your own groups, your in-groups propaganda, but by God, the out-groups propaganda will jump out. It'll jump out like a skunk in the rain, man. There's another example here. <clears throat> Here's an ad. I wrote this down um, shortly after the riot or the insurrection, whatever you want to call it, at the Capitol. One of the cable news chimps all but canonized a member of Congress who was photographed, maybe you saw this, they were on their hands and knees cleaning up the Capitol building themselves. This is how they phrased it, cleaning up the Capitol building himself after the insurrection. I think that was the cry out at the bottom of the screen. Senator cleaning up himself after the insurrection very dramatic very so hard oh he loves his cathedral of democracy so much he's willing to go in there himself and clean oh, heartwarming it's bullshit sophisticated media consumer you have to understand the positioning of cameras why there are camera where are they these images just don't come in out of thin air their photo ops. Somebody had to set up a camera, a image-capturing device of some sort, right? I, I honestly think that people forget that anything you see on a television screen is brought to you one way or another by a camera. There has to be a camera sitting in the room. I think people forget that, I swear to God. If you look at everything, all these reality show dramas, and that includes politics these days, if you look at all this stuff and you understand that, and you can picture in your head how it looks in that room with a television camera, or sometimes with somebody taking a still shot. I know this being a photographer. I mean, I'm, I'm hypersensitive to it. But I, I really do. I think people forget, despite the ubiquitous nature of video and image-capturing devices. They're everywhere. I think people forget that the, the crap they're seeing on their television is brought to them by this big, huge camera. And then most of it, a good portion of it, is staged. It's crafted. It's scripted. The scene is set. The lighting is set. The camera is positioned just so. And then the footage is edited later on. The image is edited later on. It doesn't really look like that. It looks like that only after it goes through all of this entire process of being edited. Either video or image, doesn't matter. It's hilarious to me. Sophisticated informational consumers. You've got to understand that. I mean, do you understand that the image tugging at your heartstrings that day was taken with a camera? by a photographer with access to the Capitol, and then it was released with permission for a very specific purpose. PR, which we all know, if we remember our Alul, actually, if we remember our Bernays, PR is literally uh, the same thing as propaganda. This is the age of the ubiquitous influencer. You have got to comprehend this by now, right? Of course you do. Again, I just touched on it. When it's their photo op, you understand it. Not when it's yours. Oh, no. That's on the level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What? Is this a cynical attitude? Of course it is. It's easy to apply critical thought to an enemy's spin. It's far more impressive and far more important to apply it to your own team's spin. You don't have to tell anybody about it. You don't have to advertise. You don't have to signal your critical thinking virtue. Just do it in your own head. Understand it in your own mind. Look for it with your own eyes. This is your only life raft, man. Drowning in data overload? Drowning in data, that's your life raft. That's how you know where to go. It's the only way the only way you're gonna fail we're all gonna fail I'm gonna get sucked into something here and there without a doubt but you gotta try we have got to become a nation of better informational consumers we have to or we're done this is all Well, today is February the 18th of 2021. It's the early morning hours. Uh, sun's getting ready to come up here in just a little bit. Surprise episode this week. It is the second one. woo Are you excited? Are you thankful? <sighs> be nice when you answer that question. So today, the Perseverance rover, it's going to be on Mars one way or another. <laughs> Whether or not it uh, survives the descent, most of you, by the time you get this, You'll already know. Right now when I'm recording it, I don't. Half of these missions, half of these missions to Mars, European Space Agency, NASA, whoever else, I think somebody else sent something there. I forget. Half of them have failed. Almost all of that due to how hard it is to place something on a planet like that. It's incredibly hard. You need to go check out how they're uh, hoping to deploy this car-sized rover onto Mars later on today. It's incredible. I think they did this with the last one Curiosity, was it Curiosity? I forget what the last one was. I think they used the same process, the same. But it's it's remarkable. I mean, you're talking about dropping a car-sized rover from a <laughs> another vehicle. It's hard to describe this. They have animations all over the place, but The capsule comes into the atmosphere. It slows down with this huge parachute, right? And then this thing, after it sheds the heat shield, this thing comes out the bottom of it, and then these jets fire off. See, it brings it down close to the surface. It hovers for like a second, like one second just hovering there. This is on Mars, for Christ's sake. It lowers the rover down with these nylon straps releases and then flies off to go crash somewhere else the animation how they do this is inspiring the level of creativity engineering putting everything together putting this thing together building it putting it on a rock i'm in awe of the people who do this also part of this deployment's a little helicopter a little helicopter well, like I want it. It's like $60 million, but I want it. It's a, a neat little thing. And that thing, that little helicopter, if that's successful, that's going to be the first powered aircraft to take flight on another planet ever. The first powered flight on another planet. That is, to me, again, amazing. We're learning. We are taking our steps out into the solar system. As someone who flew the only drone he's ever piloted into a little mud puddle and killed it on the first flight, I find that helicopter thing incredibly cool. Who is piloting this thing? I mean, there's like an 11-minute delay in radio signals. You can't do it in real time, but still, I want to go to JPL, and I want to fly that thing. (laughs) There's no mud puddles on Mars. I can't kill it. And you might be able to tell. I'm a little excited. I, get, I don't get excited about things. There, there are very, very few things in this world that I have found that I believe in that excite me in a positive way. Very few things. It used to be baseball used to be one of those. Baseball has destroyed itself. Turned it into beer league softball. Traveling, I can't do it anymore. Yeah, I, I get excited about that. I <laughs> can't go to Mexico these days. I mean, you could. Probably not the smartest thing in the world. So, what is there (laughs) these days? This is it. I was thinking about this around the first of the year. I may have said something in in one of the podcasts, kind of hinting at this. But, here's my thinking on it. If you're seeking some genuine, quote-unquote, hope for the future, and what, quote-unquote, we could accomplish... If you're looking for that, exploding technology has made this an astronomical golden age. Science at its best. What's possible when human reason is detached from emotive and egocentric wants and delusions? I see things like this as something that's authentically and genuinely One of the very few things that are authentically and genuinely positive. The objective definition of progress. It's right there. It's right before us today. Human progress. Again, around the first of the year, I considered abandoning the podcast's unpleasant, uncomfortable subject matter. Propaganda, all that stuff. I considered abandoning that and switching to material like this, like what I'm doing right now, in order to find a non-toxic spring from which to drink. Something where I'm not just wallowing in the negativity of human fallibility all the time. Politics, evolutionary human nature, its accompanying uh, tribal masturbation, it leaves a nihilistic taste in the mouth. Following the contemporary torrent of astronomical and cosmological discoveries has become the best and most consistent dose of constructive enthusiasm I have been able to find in months. I've said before and written A lot more than I've said. That uh, exploring, exploration, constructive, team-based problem-solving, improvising, conquering the impossible, figuring it out on the fly. That is humanity at its best. We are explorers. We choose to go places, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. That's the allure of the moon. That's the allure of Mars, When Mars is achieved, it'll be the allure of someplace else. That's what we do. From cavemen to small bands of people leaving Africa to quote-unquote colonize the rest of the world, to sailors, the ones I was talking about earlier, the sailors with more balls than sense, rounding the South American Straits, people exploring Antarctica. I mentioned most of this earlier. Antarctica, the Arctic, the Voyager probes. We go places. It's in, it's approaching the Oort cloud now. It's in the heliosphere. on its way toward Proxima Centauri. That's what we do. We go to the Moon, we go to Mars. We go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. We go to the South Pole. We go to the North Pole. Why? Because it's there. Because it's hard. Because circumstances and nature tell us we can't, and we want to prove it wrong. We want to figure it out. We want to see what's there. We just want to egocentrically be the first person who did it. That's all right. After that first person does it, other people always follow. It's these intrepid explorers that always drag the rest of civilization with them, whether they like it or not. That's why we live in this country. That's why we live where we do. People left. People went looking for something else, for something better. They went looking for possibilities. They didn't know it was there, they didn't know if they'd survive. Can you imagine being in Jamestown? Can you imagine being in Plymouth? I've been to Plymouth, Massachusetts. Can you imagine being there that first winter? Can you imagine getting on the boat in England? You can say what you want about the, the Puritans, religious nut jobbery whatever. That's fine. You, you, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you. But the balls, the guts it took to get on that boat and go start a new life in a new strange place. That's the spirit. How many people landed in Plymouth? How many people were in Jamestown? They went first. The vanguard arrived. The rest followed later. That's what people do. We are explorers. We are, I've said this before, we are an invasive species at heart. I said it in a negative way, in a negative connotation, That's so long ago. But... Another way to look at this, another more positive way to look at it, is that only when you abandon who or what you think you quote-unquote should be, do you come to know and accept exactly who and what you really are. A good lesson just in general here. But as a collective species, I think it works the same. It's then that you truly know your strengths, that you truly become unstoppable as an individual, or as a species. Chasing noble savage delusions, on the other hand, not so much. Hopefully, NASA and uh, JPL pull this off. Even if the mission fails, we will remember. Entire fleets of ships that are resting at the bottom of the sea will remember Gus Grissom and the rest how we failed, how we learned, and then how later on we ultimately succeeded. That's exploration. The mission's name says it all, man. Above courage, above genius, above wisdom, and even above compassion, perseverance. That may be the uh, best and hardest of all the traits. Oh, it feels good to talk positively about something. Oh, that does feel good. I miss that. I miss that part of me. Should go traveling with me sometime. Different human being. Escape with is a website. ToddzillaX over at Substack. I will be putting some more stuff up there uh, relatively soon. ToddzillaX.com is the old uh, travel material. Glad well, I did this tonight. We'll start doing two a week now. Who knows? We'll talk to you again on Monday. Till next time, so long.